Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm in the studio with Andy Green, and today we're going to be celebrating the life and music of Peter Tork of the Monkees. We have a bunch of interview clips that we're going to play with Peter, but first I wanted to ask Andy, how would you kind of sum up Peter's role in the Monkees, both musically and on the TV show, and also just kind of like his life story? Yeah, it's a bit complicated because the show and the group are two very different things in a lot of ways. When they cast the Monkees, they hired two actors and they hired two people that were pro musicians, and Peter Torque, he was one of them. So he was a talented banjo player, bassist, and a like guitar player that's on their first album on a bunch of songs. And on the show, he was the goofball. He was sort of the lovable, stupid guy that was always just falling down and being goofy, basically. But in life, he was kind of, especially in the 60s, he was the really cool monkey. My interview that I did with him in 2007 was for one of Rolling Stone's anniversary issues. And the stories I talked to him for were about the Los Angeles scene in 1967 and also Monterey Pop. And one of the reasons I talked to him is he was sort of one of the kings of the L.A. scene in 1967, which completely belies the idea that the monkeys were considered so commercial and uncool and artificial. Yeah. And of the four monkeys, he was the coolest one. He knew Stephen Stills in the 60s. He knew Crosby then. He was part of the whole folk scene then. He was a very talented guy who got stuck in this TV band and it forever gave him a rep as like a children's star, which was very unfair. So let's hear a little bit of what Peter had to say to me in defense, sort of, of the monkeys and explaining how he saw their sort of musical position. Did anyone give you shit for being in the monkeys or treat you with any less respect than if you were in some other band? Um, gee, not that I know of. You know, there was all that stuff about the monkeys, there was a huge controversy about the monkeys of right. not playing their own instruments, being a commercial band. The truth is, as far as I can tell and as far as I'm concerned, like I said, The Who came over and uh, I played them. They hadn't heard music from Big Pink, the band's album. Mm. And I played that. I had a decent stereo system, and I played that beginning to end. And uh, you know, Peter came over to me and said, "You know, it's it's really rare, as it was in those days, particularly rare, to hear an album that's good from beginning to end. Because obviously, uh, you had a hit, you cranked out an album, you know, and the album was like mediocre except for the hits. And that was the custom, and everybody sort of expected it. But Big Pink was good from beginning to end. And those guys, you know, they saw me for who I was and what I was and what I was doing, and they knew exactly what was happening. Uh, right." It is said about us, don't know for sure, that Lennon said, well, they're not the Beatles after all, are they? They're the Marx Brothers. <laughs> and I used to go over to Mama Cass's uh, for lunch during the shoot. I would just say, okay, I'm just going to pop off to, and just drop in on her. And uh, she, too, saw us for what we were. I mean, all of the guys, the Beatles and the Stones and uh, the Who and Jimmy and uh, Janice Joplin, whom I met before I met broke, uh, Big Brother was just coming up and I was still a, a Southern California hippie on the streets and she and I became friendly and when the whole thing exploded, she was delighted for me and delighted to see me hmm. and made no bones about that. The big boys made right. no bones. They had right. nothing to say about us. You know, they saw us exactly for what we were. You know, they understood the process. They knew exactly what was going on. They had no gripe. What's to gripe? Right. Crying out loud, you know. Right. I mean, I know a guy now who occasionally alludes to me out of the blue and somebody else had to point out to me that this guy wished he had my life. I mean, right. he just says, hey, and Torque over there knows all about this, don't you, Torque? At the top of his lungs across a room, you know, sometimes. Right. And somebody had, and I get, what's going on here? Somebody had to point out that the guy wished he had my life and not his. Of course, yeah. <laughs> well, do you remember a group called the Walker Brothers? Yes. They were bitter about yeah. the monkeys. I mean, they had one or two hits, and that was about it, and they were virulent. 
I mean, any four slobs off any street in any town in America could have done better. Right. Well, okay, you know, whatever you say. Uh, but, um, it's, and all credit has to go to the producers. It really was Bert Schneider and Bob Rafelson's show. And one of the ways that these guys expressed their brilliance was by picking me, you know. <laughs> so, well, so, you know, that is. And they produced this fabulously successful event, which we're talking about 40 odd years later. Right, right. So, this is not nothing. This sure. is, this is certainly something. And as to whether the monkeys could play their own instruments, well, the usual joke is, no, we all played borrowed instruments, you know. Right. And we went out on the road and played our own hits, and it's kind of funny, but that's almost exactly what the birds and the Beach Boys did. Right. And the birds, after all, were playing other people's songs with other musicians in the studio. McGuinn played on their own cuts, I gather, because he knew how to get that 12-string. Sure, and but yeah, with him and him and all studio musicians. Absolutely. Yeah, pretty much. Absolutely, yeah. Speaking of the birds, apparently So You Want to Be a Rock and Roll Star was written at least about the idea of the monkeys, or as a subtle dig at the monkeys. Were you aware of that? Did that ever come up in conversation? No. Yeah. They, nobody ever said anything like that to me. I mean, I took it at face value, you yeah. know, that uh, maybe they thought about the monkeys, but, you know, get a guitar and learn how to play. Michael and I had been playing for, well, I'd been playing music one sort or another for, let's see, from the time I was nine years old, I began to take piano lessons. Sure. Continuous for what's that 12 14 years and Michael had been playing continuously for several years before that he was a folky Mickey played folk guitar fireside guitar you gave him a guitar he could play anything and Davey who didn't play any instruments had been on Broadway he was the American original artful dodger in Oliver right you know right. and that's not nothing as a musical no. ability and no. Davey too when we said oh Davey we need a bass player for this thing he said well how do I play a bass I said well you put your finger here and you pluck this string here at this moment and he listened boom 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 and he was on stage with us playing bass in five minutes Davey is one of the most fabulously musically adept minds I've ever met right right and that's not nothing and these days I'm still on the road incidentally right I'd like to get a plug in if I can sure for what I'm doing now, which is this blues band, Peter Tork and Shoe Suede Blues. We're primarily a blues band. We're kind of blues pop, really, but and you can't do right. a show with Peter Tork without doing a few monkey songs. <laughs> and we do a version of Clarksville. I had to let Peter get his plug-in from 12 years ago because there's something really sweet about it. He wanted to promote his then-current band. We're going to be talking about Peter's life and also playing some of these audio clips from both my interview with him in 2007 and maybe one of Andy Green's interviews with him. But I wanted to play another clip where Peter talked about how he met David Crosby, and that leads into the whole story of his involvement with the Greenwich Village folk scene and also how Stephen Stills was almost in the monkeys. So let's hear that bit if we can. Well, I first met Crosby when I was a village hippie. Nothing had happened for me yet. I was still singing folk songs with my little banjo and passing the basket. And I knew McGuinn. McGuinn had been on the village scene with me. We used to play guitar together in the apartments, you know, and smoke a little weed and sing and play together. I knew him pretty well. He went off to L.A. and came back with the birds, and they were doing a TV show. And they came back to the village, you know. McGuinn said, let me show you my old uh, stomping grounds. And they walked into some of the cafes that I used to inhabit. And so I had dinner with those guys once, met Crosby there. Interestingly enough, I remember McGuinn and Crosby, and I hardly remember the other guys at all. I met them all there. They were all mm. five were there. But I hardly remember anybody except for some reason Crosby was there, beardless, mustacheless, but still with that kind of subtly gleeful look on mm. his face that he always has. Mm. So later on, when I was in L.A., I saw the bird at the trip. I couldn't believe a band could be so loud. It was my first experience with a really loud band. Mm. I suppose they, that 
volume level would have been nothing today, but at the time it was shocking to me because I'm used to folk music and blues music. If you're going to be electric at all, it's just a little 20-watt amp on the floor, you know. <laughs> These guys were pounding the decibels out. And uh, Crosby came up to the big house a lot, along with Denny Doherty and Barry McGuire and Steve Stills. Uh, Steve, as you may have heard, was the guy who looked like me on the Greenwich Village streets, who later turned me on to the monkeys because they liked him, but they thought his hair and teeth were not telegenic, and did he know anybody? With better looking. <laughs> better, well, with better, more telegenic, yeah. with a tenth of his talent, and, uh, you know, so of course Stephen had to go on and suffer with Buffalo Springfield and Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, hmm. and of course, two or three times, uh, Stephen didn't know which way to turn sometimes, and, and I was able to offer him my hospitality, so when I had the big house, he came up and for a while, I vacated the big house, and Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young were staying there. It that was, was like the house. next. That was like sixty-eight or sixty-nine. Yeah, in or fact, the Stones stayed there for a week once under Crosby's. Uh, I mean, Steve's, uh, Stevens, uh, Aegis. He had them come over, and I think he cleared out for a week while they stayed there. So hmm. that was pretty cool. So, Andy, tell us a little bit about Peter Torx's post-monkey days. We're going to get into the meat of the monkeys. That's disgusting, sorry. We're going to get into the the central sort of monkey story, but in his post-monkeys years, what were some of his troubles like and, and yeah. his redemption? It was tough because he was the first one that quit the monkeys and he found out quickly that a post-monkeys life was very difficult because solo, it just wasn't going to happen. So he got busted for weed in 72 and served four months in jail and then became a school teacher. So in 1976, he is a high school teacher in California where 10 years earlier he's one of the biggest rock stars in the world it was an astounding turnabout but then in the 80s the nostalgia started it became a big thing when the old show started to air in reruns on MTV and they reformed and they toured a ton and that was his redemption really was these monkeys tours he could make a actual living finally and when I spoke to him in 2007 he had a lot to say about sort of his life philosophy which I actually thought he really had some considerable wisdom to share and maybe we can hear that bit I mean the 60s were a fabulous time for me and I've had some ups and downs in my life but mostly the glamour and the glitz is gone but the fabulousness of my life is still with me. I am so glad to be where I am and who I am and in the state of health I am and the age I am. Yeah. All these things are still glorious and I mean and it's really a function of well, basically, ultimately, it's a function of being able to accept the help that I needed uh, when I needed it. Ultimately, that's... Uh, you know what? I lost a good friend to uh, to despair. I'm sure it was to despair. Mm. A man named Jerry Renino was the Monkees bass player in when we had backup band. Right. And he was our main man, and he did himself in. And I'm convinced that it was because he couldn't relinquish his role as the go-to guy. You know, he was the man, mm. and he couldn't relinquish that role. And I think that, ultimately, I think he couldn't ask for help. And so, you know, when they say in uh, real estate, there's only three issues, location, location, location. Right. In life, there's only three things to remember. Get help, get help, get help. Yeah, yeah. I'm uh, hard-earned yeah. and, and granted to me, not discovered, you know. It's strictly a function of being at the right place at the right time. If you go into life, sometimes you expect justice, and if you get mercy, you go, all right. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> That's what happened to me. I really I got I love that thing about, uh, I was trying to figure out if he got that from somewhere, that you go into life expecting justice, and if you get mercy, you're grateful. Andy's convinced that must be from somewhere. A quick Google did not show a source. Perhaps he came up with that. Yeah, I have no clue. That could be Torque's original thing. So we're going to 
talk about Peter Tork's entire story. But Rob, you wrote a great piece today on rollingstone.com about his life. What did Peter Tork mean to you? He was America's first hippie boyfriend in a way. This sort of like 60s kitty TV encounter with very fast moving and adventurous and experimental things that were happening on the West Coast. And so for a lot of people who grew up with the monkey's music, Peter Tork was one of our first images of what that kind of hippie-ish bohemian adult life might look like. You're also a fan of his actual songwriting and of the monkey's music in general. You're a huge fan of the monkey's music. Yeah, he didn't write or sing as much as the others, but his distinctive element in terms of you know what he was telling you in that interview about his village folky roots, that he was always the one who kept that as part of the element of the monkeys. One of my favorite monkey songs, Shades of Grey, everybody takes a turn singing, and then Peter comes and just sings four words, the chorus, only shades of grey. It's funny because like, it's a beautiful moment because each monkey is taking a turn at the mic singing this really like portentous, heartfelt lyrics, and Peter comes in with those four words, and it's very beautiful that he has the punchline of this very zen sort of song. It was always just a beautiful highlight of the monkey's music and a good picture of his role in it. I definitely wanted as part of this show to have the two of you make a broader case for the monkeys. And maybe I'll have you do that before we dig into some of the details. They're not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. There are many people who think that's an injustice, present company included. Mm -hmm. So maybe you guys can make the broader case for the greatness of the monkeys. I think the problem they constantly face is they were put together by TV producers for a TV show. And as people have said to me, but they could have been four other guys. But that's just not true. It was cast brilliantly and each brought something to the table and they're wonderful vocalists and they were given these amazing songs by the likes of Carol King and Neil Diamond and Boyce and Hart. It is one of the great catalogs of the 60s, I would argue. I completely agree. I always loved your interview with Peter Tork where he says, I quoted this in my piece, with all due modesty since I had little to do with it, which is him <laughs> being too modest indeed. He said, I think the monkeys are one of the great pop songbooks and I completely agree. Their singing voices had so much to do with it. People talk about the monkeys as some kind of archetype of artificiality in 60s pop, but there is so much of that and that the monkeys' music has lasted for people who have barely seen the TV show. You know, the TV show is just a blip in terms of TV history, but the music is forever and has proven to be very lasting. Tends to be, for me, the idea is maybe it doesn't matter so much what happened in the kitchen if the result is the result. Bands form all sorts of ways. They were formed for a TV show, but, you know, so what in the end? And I think the more years pass, the less that matters. And the miracle of the Monkees is they became a real band. By the third album, it's a completely real band who's writing the songs, who's singing the songs, who's playing on the songs, and the songs are great. Right, there's a Pinocchio slash Frankenstein scenario there, absolutely. Yeah, it's the craziest thing, but they made a truly fantastic album. I love Headquarters, and that's all them. Yeah, that's an amazing album. And really, like their albums after that are Pisces is just a fantastic album. I always love something Mike Nesmith said to you, I think just like a few years ago. He said, people think it's weird that we actually became a band, but given that time, you put any random four guys together, they would form a band. That's just what people did back then. <laughs> yeah. And it's a beautiful thing. And like how it came together, Sex Pistols were formed by a guy who ran a clothing store. Exactly. <laughs> you know, right. Like he picked them for that. Bands answer ads in the paper. There's lots of ways that bands come together. It's what the monkeys did with that music. You cannot say four random people could have yeah. sung and made that songbook. And the fact that they didn't write all the songs, but no one hates the temptations that they didn't write their songs for the most part. I feel that they were held to a different standard because they were on TV, they appealed to children, and the adults at the time, all the rock critics, 
they thought it was crap for kids and they were wrong, but that was the mentality that has never escaped them for some people. I'm just going to keep asking the question, make the case for the monkeys and watch yeah. these two guys get more and more impassioned. <laughs> That's going to be today's show. So Peter told me a little bit about the intensity of being in the monkeys. The monkeys were in 1967, as we said before on the show, were the biggest band in at least in America, possibly the world. Yeah. And it was very akin to Beatles mania all over again. Right. But they had to work like maniacs because they were filming a TV show all day long and then recording songs in the evening and then touring. So their schedules were completely insane. What do people not get about the degree of the monkey's success at that time? Because it was huge. It was so huge and it was so abrupt. In terms of like the lasting music that came out of it, that's the really shocking and weird thing about the whole story. There are lots of things that are huge for a few months or a few years, but the sheer volume of great music that came out of it and that the monkeys were definitely like designed as basically some Hollywood producers go to see A Hard Day's Night and they're like, hey, we could do this as a kiddie <laughs> TV show. And the crazy thing is they were so right. They were so <laughs> right, yes. Right, uh, but the entire thing was like 23 months or something as far as success. Off the first hit single until the head movie bombed and the show was canceled. It was all very brief, but they just churned out song after song in that entire time period. And that they kept evolving that whole time. Something yeah. I love is, you know, this is a time when they're moving in rock circles where lots of experimental things are going on and they're hearing it and reflecting it in this very like wide pop platform. So which album is Daily Nightly on? The one where you could tell they just heard Jefferson Airplane. <laughs> and they're like, wow, this is great and we can do this. And it's so funny that the monkeys were in a position where all this exciting thing is going on and they're responding to everything that's happening all around them. Right. Could you talk a little bit about the songs, as we've said, were so great. They weren't at first written by them, but the selection was so spectacular. Who was making that selection? How are they getting such great songs so consistently? It was Don Kirshner at first, who became famous in the 70s for Don Kirshner's rock concert, his TV show. But in the 60s, he was the supervisor of the show and had sole power on the first two albums. And since the show was such a huge platform for music, it was MTV before MTV, where they'd play a song on the show, then a song would come out and it would skyrocket on the charts because they'd so many viewers. So because of that, they got top shelf stuff. They got some great Carol King songs and so much more. Yeah, were Carol King and people writing these songs for the monkeys or were they just giving the cream of the crop to the monkeys, if you know what I mean? It was both. Yeah. There's this duo that were named Boyce and Hart that were writing just for the monkeys. Let's hear Peter Tork talking about how hard they were working in 1967 as the monkeys because they had a lot to do all at once. But your guys sort of fame peaked at the summer of love. I think lots of people, they'd imagine you guys were hanging out with rock stars and having lots of fun, but it was just a ton of work, right? I mean, you were busy all the time, right? Well, at one point, the schedule went like this. Arrive at the studio at 7.30 in the morning, mm -hmm. make up till 8, make up in here, you know, coffee, mm -hmm. till 8, shooting at 8, I mean shooting, on the set, cameras roll at 8.03, work till 7 o'clock, grab hamburgers on the way across walking or driving down the street to RCA, recording from 8 o'clock at night until 10 or 11 o'clock. Now, in my case, I had a girlfriend who lived out on the west side, and it was a 25-minute drive out there. I went out there and stayed and came back in from got about four hours sleep a night mm -hmm. and came back in in time for makeup at 7.30 again the next day. And that was day in and day out, three, five days a week, depending on what the shooting schedule was. So, yeah, it was grueling. I and mean, it was a lot of fun, too. You know, when you're that age, you don't notice. I still love to record, and I don't know what would happen if somebody tried to put me through that schedule today. <laughs> I'd probably suffer. I don't know. It wouldn't work. <laughs> Let's just leave yeah. it at that. But, yeah, we were working very hard. Other times, 
when we weren't shooting, we did have a chance to go and hang. You know, I used to go visit uh, Mama Cass. And, mm-hmm. and that. So, Andy and Rob, we were talking about the moment when the Monkees kind of became a real band, mm-hmm. or more of a real band, or more of a conventional idea of a real band. Explain how that happened and, and what yeah. it meant. Well, what happened was the songs got so big that they were forced to like go on tour, but they weren't a real band at that point, and Mickey was not a like drummer at all. He had no clue how to play the drums, so he was taking lessons on the set of the show, and they go on tour as a four-piece rock band. They're playing a stadium, <laughs> so the recordings of them playing live are astounding. It's like a punk band almost. It's so raw, because they're playing these songs that were Hal Blaine on drums and like Carol Kay on bass, and it's these four guys playing it, and it's really... They didn't really get one complaint, though, did they? No, the kids and the girls get, yeah, screamed yeah, yeah. the entire time, and famously, Jimi Hendrix served as their opening act and was booed <laughs> off the stage. When he played Foxy Lady, they'd yell back Foxy Davy. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So, so I, you know, I, I didn't put that all together, so that when he was touring with them, that was when they were still just learning how to be a band? Yeah. That's hilarious. And the recordings I didn't really of it that. that are on Spotify on this live album, it is astounding. If you hear Live 67 of them playing, it is like a punk band a decade before punk. It's really something. So the monkeys invented punk is what you're not yes, saying. Yes, I'm saying exactly that. <laughs> and the Sex Pistols, they played Stepping Stone at almost every show that they ever played. Yeah, Minor uh, Threat always played Stepping Stone. It's I was going to say that. Yeah, it's a touchstone. thing. It's yes. a thing. I think we actually have a little bit of audio of the monkeys playing live in their uh, punk days. And I'll meet you at the station Can be by 4.30 I've made your reservation Don't be Hey! In a way, it was also a prelude to bands who did everything in Pro Tools many decades later and had to learn to play live as well. Yep. I mean, anyone who went to the first Berlin concert or whatever would be able to tell you that it's a thing that never ended. It's hard to match what you do in the studio, whether you did it or not. Yeah, it's very hard. When they toured later, of course, they'd have backing bands, and Mickey became a much better drummer. So what happened from there? Obviously, these stories are very famous, but it's worth hearing again. Yeah, after two albums in which they had no control, they fought back, and they pushed Kirshner out, and Nesmith he got so angry at him that he punched through a wall right in front of him. And the third album, they were big enough to do on their own. Was there any sense in which that was a mistake? I don't think so, no. Not in terms of the musical quality. You know, Headquarters is a great record. It's famous as the second biggest record of 1967 after <laughs> Sgt. Pepper. We need Mickey Dolenz in the show last summer, I think. Like, yeah. He was telling that great story about, you know, they take a break from the set. On their lunch break, they go and listen to this new album, Sgt. Pepper. And he said, and then we all just wanted to die, but we had to go back and do the afternoon making the monkeys. <laughs> but the way that they were in a very pop position, responding to all the stuff that's going on. Something I love when you watch one of the greatest rock films ever made, Monterey Pop, the documentary of that June 1967 festival where Jimi Hendrix is playing for the first time in the US, The Who and everybody. And you see Mickey Dolenz in all the crowd scenes. Mickey Dolenz was there, Peter Tork were there. They were a very important part of that. And you know, it is kind of funny when you see Ravi Shankar playing and there's this big close-up of Mickey Dolenz in the front <laughs> row grooving, he's into it, you know, Cass and Michelle and everybody. Yeah, and what's less talked about is I think that Mickey Dolenz, he's one of the best singers of the entire decade. His voice was... Absolutely. Just hearing him in that clip that we just played, like, what a pro, and nobody can even hear him in the crowd. And he's hitting all those notes, which is kind of amazing. Let's hear for Pete's sake, which uh, I think Peter Tork co-wrote mm-hmm. from headquarters. It's in everything we do. In this generation, in this love and time. In this love and time. 
now I thought we'd hear... We're going to play some audio of Peter Tork talking about the Monkees reunion. But first explain what happened there. What led to the revival of the Monkees? Well, it's sort of the 20-year rule of nostalgia that by 1986, all their fans, they reached an age that they wanted to look back and a young MTV was desperate for programming. So they put the show back on and the ratings skyrocketed and they got offers to go back on the road and they were playing arenas again. It was an astounding thing. Was that your first experience of the Monkees? Was when it got back on MTV or did you somehow glom onto it earlier than that? No, I grew up on Monkees reruns, which, you know, like the Brady Bunch, a staple of 70s UHF stations. Google that. UHF stations. <laughs> in every town, there were the Monkees and the Brady Bunch were on in the afternoon after school in that slot. It was 4 p.m. on Channel 56 was the Monkees. <laughs> so interesting because I grew up, this has nothing to do with music, but I grew up just after the UHF era and there was the UHF dial on a TV, but I couldn't get anything on it. So if I oh, had been man. able to get anything, apparently it would have been Monkees reruns. Yes, and the Monkees reruns, and sometimes they do double headers. Gilligan's Island was also like that <laughs> afternoon. Channel 56 is much better than Channel 38. I will go to my grave arguing this with absolutely nobody but my sisters. Nobody else remembers. But um, the monkeys, the music was so good. And that was always something that was so shocking that, that they were great comedians, which is what they were hired for. But they were also great singers and great performers and that the songs that they got were so great. So I remember hearing stuff like Going Down or Star Collector. And it's just mind blowing that I was you know, exposed to this you know, fantastic music. And Torque very much like the Ringo of the TV show. He was the kitty's first favorite. You know, he was your first favorite monkey. And uh, for my sisters and I, that was the first record I ever bought. The records were often sold in made-for-TV offers. So my sisters and I, we pulled in $2 each. It was sent check or money order, five ninety eight to a P.O. box. And you got the best of the monkeys on two LPs. And that was the very first record purchase of my life. Wow. wow. What do you think it cost to buy airtime on Channel 56 and UHF in the <laughs> Clearly afternoon? very cheap. Very cheap. <laughs> and yeah, I once told this to Mickey Dolenz and I said, you know, that was the first record I bought. And I felt bad afterwards. I was like, well, that's kind of a cheesy thing to say. He probably hears that often. And the very first thing, and it always blew my mind what he said, and it says to me a lot about Mickey Dolenz and a lot about the monkeys, but the first thing he said was, Ooh, what was on that one? Mm. And, you know, I was like, because there were so many Monkey's Greatest Hits. He was like, what was on it? And I would just go through tune after tune. He'd go, oh, yeah, that one's great. You know, <laughs> Teardrop City, a phenomenal song. Much better sequel to Last Train to Clarksville, in my opinion. It's one of those total ripoff sequels that's better than the original. But he had something to say about every song on that record. They were fundamentally music people. What else was on it? <laughs> Tapioca Tundra was on it, wow. which is completely bizarre. Good, clean, fun. You know, it really showcased the sort of the individual personalities that came up when Mike was really getting into the country thing, Mike Nesmith, and Davey was really getting into the showbiz thing, which those were not my favorite songs. <laughs> <laughs> but this is a pretty creatively assembled greatest hits that you ended up buying, apparently. Yeah, it is. Yeah. I don't know how it was assembled. And Porpoise Song, which was not in the TV show, that was yeah. from the movie head. And that was one of the weirdest things I'd ever heard in my life up to that point. The psychedelic ballad, Carol King going to the extremes of her imagination and that was the one that I always thought the record player is broken because like, it was like, goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. It was such a weird and beautiful song. And it was very hard to translate that to the fun-loving mop tops that I knew from side one and side two of that record. Let's hear uh, Tapioca Tundra. Yeah. 
So while we're getting very trippy with the monkeys here, let's also hear the porpoise song written by Carl King, right? Yes. Carl King possibly tripping? <laughs> Is it possible? Her approximation of everything. Carol King could do it all. Fantastic. And how old were you when you were listening to this? Very, very, very young. You know, like seven, eight. Was this before? Sorry, I don't want to dig too much, but was this before you heard the Beatles around the same time? Or It was around the same time. And it was easy to think of them as contemporaries. But something about the monkeys being American, being so pop, and going through that Beatles journey of starting out, you know, like lovable little mop tops and getting weird. And the monkeys compress that into such an astoundingly short <laughs> period of time. Within two weeks. Yeah, no, yeah, but yeah, yeah essentially. Practically. Yeah. Yeah. And Torque, as the you know most authentically bohemian of them, he was absolutely crucial in terms of the monkeys being open to that sort of sensibility. The famous story of when Robert Plant came to LA for the very first time and he wanted to meet his hero, Neil Young, he knew the guy to call was Peter Tork. And Peter Tork was the guy who made that introduction. That's the sort of belovedness that Peter Tork had in that, that music society. Talking to him about that scene, he really was a linchpin. He was a connecting point. Him and Mama Cass were, yes, were, were, absolutely. were big connector they points. Kind of had, if I may be permitted to compare Peter Tork to Gertrude Stein for a moment. Of course. Uh, but like, it was kind of that salon thing that people would go to Peter Tork's house. Jackson Brown loves to tell the stories of how it was always open house at Peter Tork's and you'd always go there and there was always people partying and there'd always be food, which was a essential for these starving young songwriters. And Peter Tork would host all these places where artists would meet and share ideas, share songs. It, very much like Mama Cass's house that way. And famously, as he told me, there was a swimming pool that no one could look down upon, so it allowed everyone to swim naked, which I guess was a big drawing point back then. We were just talking about what led up to the Monkees' 80s reunion. The show was on MTV, and all of a sudden, there was Monkees Mania, again with an entirely new generation. Yeah, so they toured, but just the three of them, because Betty Nesmith, the mother of Mike Nesmith, she invented liquid paper <laughs> and then died and gave him... Like, $40 million or something that she was paid for it. So he was off being very rich. So the three of them two were as the three keys, as they called themselves. And they sort of all turned on each other. It got very like bitter at times. And there were many long periods of time where they didn't tour or really speak to each other. From 2001 until 2011, there was no monkeys. So let's hear Peter Tork talking about the 80s reunion, how that went, and what it felt like, if we can. This is him talking to Andy Graham. So you guys reformed in the mid-80s, mm-hmm. and the band was... 86, yeah. so reunion tour. And it was huge. Yeah, it was. Incidentally, what is not as well known is that in summer 85 or so, Mm -hmm. I was uh, here where I am now in uh, Connecticut at what was in my parents' house and uh, got a call from David and said he'd heard about this and that other person who wanted this and that other and and we had a chance and did did I want to go to Australia with him? Mm-hmm. And Davy and I went to Australia in 86, and there was a guy connected with all that who wanted to do an American tour. And so Davy and I went to Australia knowing and planning that there was going to be a monkeys reunion. I mean, Davy and I did a monkeys show mm-hmm. in Australia. And knowing that there was going to be a monkeys reunion when we got back, meantime, in Australia, we heard that MTV was putting out what they called the Pleasant Valley Sunday Weekend, where they had twice MTV put up the monkeys back-to-back all weekend long. Oh, wow. 
I mean, it was like they started Friday evening mm-hmm. with a show and then ran for like 36 hours or something through Sunday evening or something like that. And they did it twice. And that's why, I mean, that is one of the reasons why the Monkees tour exploded, the 86 reunion tour. Yeah. It was explosive. I think, what were we, second, third biggest tour in America that, in the summer tour that year. Incredible. Yeah. You know, was, I've read some reports that you guys weren't always getting along on that tour. There was some tension that David didn't want to be on stage during the new songs and everything. Is, is any of that accurate? There was, there was some stuff going on there, but you know, the most important thing is that the man was on stage. He was on stage for that uh, that tour was a fabulous success and you know can you imagine what that would have been like if it had been Mickey and Peter would it have been nearly as big I don't think so right so Davey was also still in his cutest mode I mean I don't know Davey stayed pretty cute to the end really mm-hmm. but the camaraderie of the 60s was maybe not quite as strong among the four of us and then among the three of us later there was always varied levels of respect and admiration and affection and friendship. Did you hear the special on George Harrison the other day? And George said, you know, to the outside world, I was one of the Beatles, and the Beatles were a great big thing, and I was one of them. Inside the Beatles, I was alone. Right. So in any group, as we find out when we dig, there were varying degrees of mm. affection and uh, comradeship and uh, respect. And the monkeys were no different. You know, you can't say yes or no on any one thing like that. Did the same proportions of feelings carry over into the 80s tours? Yeah, just about. Um, you know, Mickey's always been very easy to talk to. Davey has always, always shown flashes of great insight and intelligence and wit and heart. Michael has always been hardworking and talented and funny. And I've been whatever anybody else says I've been. And it's always been that way. It's just That doesn't change much, you know. Your personality is pretty much locked in pretty early. So that's... Peter Tork talking to Andy Green, and I love his slight shade of flashes of brilliance, you know. (laughs) But Andy Green and Rob Sheffield, you were going to talk about the experience of seeing Peter Tork play in recent years and what that was like and what turned out to be his final years. So the band reunited was first in 2011. That was before Davey died and before Nez came back. I missed that tour, but Rob saw it at that, the Beacon. Yeah, that was the 45th anniversary tour. All three of them were on fire. You know, it was Davey's last tour. He was fantastic. You know, like, give Davey his due. Like he was doing the boogaloo during She Hangs Out, and it was like, absolutely ridiculous. And Peter Tork, something that he did, you know, in the 2011 tour, which didn't have Nesmith, or the 2013 tour that didn't have Davey Jones, he was the guy who would fill in for whoever wasn't there. One of my very favorite monkeys memories of all is in the 2011 tour when they were doing What Am I Doing Hanging Round, which is the one that Nesmith sang. And Torque was singing it, playing it on banjo, and really like playing up the folk and country elements of the song. And it was just like really beautiful that he could step into at any point and play whatever role the music called for him to be, and he could just light up a room. Yeah, then when Davey died and then Nesmith, when he returned, it's a whole different band, basically. That when Nez is back and Davey's gone, it's a different trio and the whole show is radically different. The comedy stuff is mostly gone and it's like a rock band again, right? Yeah, absolutely. And for someone like Tork, you know, that he was playing slide guitar, at one point he would be playing French horn on stage. Yeah. You know, that he got to show his role as a music man and also a comedian. A staple of the shows is that Mickey would tell long-winded stories and Peter would provide this sort of sardonic commentary on the sidelines. But they had just beautiful comic chemistry. 
And then on his last tour is when Nez quit again, and it was just Dolans and Torque. And so that gave Torque a huge platform to really shine, and that last tour was fantastic. Absolutely. So I'm really glad that I was able to get two of the world's biggest Monkees fans in here to try to do justice to Peter Torque. Andy is the great all-time Monkees scholar, and all of us who love the Monkees <laughs> owe Andy Green such a debt for documenting Talking to all of them, getting all of their stories. All Monkeys fans look up to Andy as the <laughs> documenter. He's the Mark Lewison of the Monkeys, let's oh, face it. Thank you. Well, you know, that once you're done with your current book, there might be a book there. But <laughs> yep. uh, And I did want to thank uh, Chris Steffen, who found my audio after 12 years with Peter Tork. So shout out to Chris Steffen. But this has been today's Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm Brian Hyatt, and I was in the studio with Rob Sheffield and Andy Green. We'll be back next week here on Sirius XM's volume, channel 106, at 1 p.m. on Friday. In the meantime, we are a podcast. Download us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to us as a podcast. And as I always say, please leave us a review, even a nice review on iTunes. It really helps. Don't be that guy who complains, or woman who complains about, it's always a guy though, who complains about the length of our music clips. We can't help that. Go on Spotify and listen to it. You know where to find music. Give us a break. Anyway, despite that, as always, thanks for listening, and we will see you next week.